Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. This week, the Daily Daf is being led by Rabbi Jill Jacobs, the Executive Director of Rabbis for Human Rights North America. This Daf continues the discussion about what counts as carrying on Shabbat for the purposes of making a person guilty of carrying from place to place. We now turn our attention from the quantity of material carried to the mode of carrying. The general principle introduced in this Daf is that someone who carries in a normal way is liable, whereas someone who carries in an abnormal and inferior way is not. For example, a person who carries in front of him or herself in his or her hands is liable, as is one who carries on his or her shoulders or in some other normal way of carrying. In contrast, a person who carries in his or her elbow, mouth, ear, shoe, shirt hem, or some other unusual place is not liable. The latter are understood as inferior ways of carrying. Presumably, our ear and our shoe are not very secure places to carry something, nor are they places where we can fit very much. But then, of course, the question is, what's normal? And who determines what counts as normal? Are normal means of carrying consistent across time and place, or are they determined by time and place? For the most part, the Gemara considers the definition of carrying to be consistent across time and place. We learn the usual height of carrying from the way that the altar was carried back in the day. So, even though we no longer have the altar, let alone carry it around, the standard for what it means to carry still harkens back to this long-ago practice. But then things get a little interesting. Rav suggests, in the name of Rabbi Chia, that a person who carries on his or her head is liable for carrying, because the people of Hutzal carry in this manner. Rashi explains that residents of this particular town carry jugs of water or wine on their heads without using their hands at all. This mode of carrying actually doesn't seem so strange at all. Most of us have probably seen pictures of women in parts of Africa or India carrying jugs or baskets on their heads, or have even traveled to parts of the world where this is common practice. But now the objections begin. The Gemara asks, why should we hold everybody liable for this odd way of carrying just because people in one particular place did it this way? Based on this, we now get a revision of Rav slash Rabbi Chia's statement. The Gemara suggests that actually what they said is that only the people of Hutzal are held liable for carrying on their heads, since this is the normal mode of carrying in their city. But then there's another objection. Shouldn't the practice of this one city be nullified in comparison with the rest of the world? In other words, the standards for carrying are consistent across place, even if not reflected in the normal practices of a given place. And so we get another revision of Rav and Rabbi Chia's statement. Now we're told that what they actually said was that a person who carries on his or her head is patur, not liable for carrying. Even the people who tzal, according to this, would get an out because their practice is nullified by what the rest of the world does. Now my initial reaction to this was that it seems odd. Why should the people of Hutzal get an out on carrying on Shabbat just because the rest of the world doesn't carry the way they normally do? For, pe- for people living there, 
Shabbat might feel like just any other day with respect to carrying. They can schlep their baskets and bottles from place to place just as usual, provided that everything stays steady on their heads and that they never rely on their hands for help. I'm not the only one who was surprised by this ruling. Tosfot brings several examples of times when the custom of a particular place may or may not have an impact on the rule for everyone. The principles that Tosfot suggest in their explanation are first, that the custom of a single person or family can't overrule the custom of the world. And second, that the custom of a place may overrule the custom of the world if that place has a special claim on the practice at hand. In the example offered by Tosfot, the fact that the people of Aravia grow cacti for their camels can be determinative because these people have more camels than anyone else. In the case of Hutsal, though, as far as we know, these people don't carry any more or any less than people living in another place. The Ritva is similarly puzzled by the suggestion that the people of Hutsal shouldn't be held liable for carrying in the normal way that they carry. He ends up drawing a distinction between customs that the rest of the world chooses not to emulate, such as carrying in this particular way, and customs that the rest of the world has no need to emulate, such as growing cacti for camels in a place where there aren't very many camels. Now, I can't say that any of these resolutions sit so well with me. At a gut level, it still seems strange that the residents of Hutsal can just carry on with their normal schlepping while the rest of the world has to take a break for Shabbat. I also think about the laws of labor, where the custom of the place is determinative. In Jewish labor law, the custom of the place determines working hours, wages, perks, and other conditions of work. Though it's important to note that these customs don't arise magically from the marketplace, but are actively set by the people of the town or even by the workers themselves. In one Talmudic case, the rabbis take up the question of an employer who makes a point of recruiting workers from a town where the custom is to start work earlier and to end work later than is the norm in the place where the employer lives. The rabbis allow this employer to declare that he or she went to the trouble of recruiting from elsewhere in order to have workers who will work longer hours. Now, this latter suggestion is troubling as it seems to justify the practice of outsourcing to developing countries where people will work long hours at low wages. I've written about this extensively elsewhere, especially in my first book, There Shall Be No Needy. And as I say there, I do think that the rabbis put some limitations on this practice. That said, labor laws establish the principle that the custom of the place matters and is not overruled by what the rest of the world does. But perhaps the realm of ritual law is simply different. All of the work forbidden on Shabbat ultimately stems from the practices of building the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. And so traditional Shabbat practice isn't simply determined by what feels like work now, but rather what reminds us of the very first work that the Jewish people did together. So even for the people of Hutzal, while they're carrying their loads on their heads, they have to remind themselves not to accidentally touch these jugs or baskets, as this would then start to feel like the carrying associated with the Mishkan. Each Shabbat practice, then, brings us back to the original experience of Shabbat and the original experiences of work and rest that we had when we first became free after coming out of slavery. That said, if I lived in Hutzal, I might suggest that we put down our jugs and baskets and let our next rest for 25 hours because the spirit of Shabbat is important as well. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently. 
and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify. <laughs>